What's up? Thanks for being back with us on the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. We got my good friend Andre Rabe today, all the way from South Africa. I mean, he didn't come from Africa. Yeah, we're using the internet, people. That's what's happening. So yeah, before we get to Andre, I got three things to remind you of. Number one, Girardian Intersections. I hope you've had a chance to check that out on eventbrite.com. Andre will be one of our keynote presenters, along with Brian Zahn, Jennifer Garcia-Bashaw, Julia Robinson-Moore, Thomas J. Ord, and myself. So we hope that you will find us there. If you've never read much of Girard, this will be a great place to learn more about him. And I promise you this, if you take it seriously, it will affect your uh, theology, the way you read the Bible, what you think of in terms of your desires, your relationships. Girardian thinking colors a lot of things. So we hope that you will join us for that. Uh, secondly, Theology Beer Camp with Trip Fuller. I'll be there October 19th through the 21st. If you haven't signed up yet, make sure you use my name as a code, Jonathan Foster. Gets you 25 bucks off. That's right. My name is worth $25. Pretty impressive. Uh, thirdly, if you haven't signed up for my Substack or Patreon newsletter, I highly encourage you to do so. All serious people who follow me, no, all people who seriously follow me, it works either way, are on the Substack or Patreon page. The easiest thing is just go to substack.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster, and you'll get in on all the almost weekly goodness that happens there. And that way you can stay up to date as far as the projects that I'm involved in and things that I'm doing. Okay, well, let's uh, get ready to hear a little bit from Andre. He is a fellow Girardian, as it were, and I'm really appreciating my friendship with him. And I got to be honest with you. I know all podcasters say this, but I absolutely love this conversation. I think that you will too. Make sure you find out about Andre at alwaysloved.net, and I'll put that in the show notes, but I hope you'll follow up with him and his partner, Marianne. All right. Peace, everyone. Yeah. We'll get Trip figured out. We'll get him. We'll get him saved sooner or later. <laughs> so this is my friend Andre Rabe, um, and it's great to have you on the podcast today. And I'll probably throw this video maybe on the Patreon page or somewhere, and I'll send it to you. You can use it however you want. But Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, audio wise, we're on the podcast, and um, Andre and I share some interesting common denominators, not the least of which is we both did some studies on trying to bring memetic theory and open and relational theology together. Mm -hmm. Like on the outside, our the idea was basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. But once you get on the inside, we not surprisingly, given how given how vast and expansive both these exactly. Yes. subject matters are we we write about completely different things plus we're different people yeah. so um so it's kind of it's kind of fun that um that that's that the world has these resources now because someone someone's got to take it and run run further right yeah, absolutely and and as you say the the depth and the width of of what you deal with in the ideas are just inexhaustible um, both Gerard and uh, I, I've really enjoyed the past few months digging even deeper into to Whitehead. And um, wow, w w what a joy to start putting the pieces together and and kind of see what what the relevance is to our lives. You know, what, what does it mean to my experience, and, and why are these ideas worth pursuing? Yeah, well. What's your response? Give us give us an, a reason. Why are they worth pursuing? I think we 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 are all in this process of trying to make sense of our world. You know, we are all meaning making creatures, and 
And um, we arrive in this world and it's already filled with stories. It's filled with symbols. It's filled with narratives. And for quite a big part of our lives, we're trying to figure out just what the meaning and the story is. And, and then when we get an idea, I think the bigger question is, what's your part in this story? <laughs> uh, uh, what do you contribute? Are you kind of just uh, um, uh, swept along with this stream in which you've got really no contra uh, creative contribution to make? Or, or is there something that you bring to your world that's unique? And I think both... Gerard and Whitehead are, are two thinkers who helps us find those moments of clarity in which the, the chaos finds an order and, and the fragment suddenly sees its part within the whole and all the scattered symbols somehow come together in a meaningful narrative. And I think it's their contribution to how we create meaning that, that I find most valuable. It's not even the content or the meaning of their respective structures of thought, but rather the fact that they um, offer us this this counterintuitive way of creating meaning. Um, yeah. Yes, that's well put. And the older I get, the more I realize that that I agree with what you're saying in terms of, I think, I think us humans are basically, we're just meaning making creatures. Mm -hmm. We're, we're storytelling creatures and we're trying to figure it out even when we're not like ostensibly doing it down deep underneath we're we're constantly trying to figure out and my my christianity was probably was very much a way of like for for all of us it's becomes a way to make meaning and so um when i began to read gerard it started to unravel and yeah. open a relational theology white headian influenced open a relational theology yes yeah, it's, it's a raveling and an unraveling yeah. all at the same time. Um, yeah. Do you, how do you, when you began to introduce this work to people who maybe haven't studied as much as you have, you ever feel like, like you want to offer an apology? Like, oh, I'm about to give you this stuff and it's going to begin to unravel your meaning-making system. I'm so sorry. Yes. Uh, wow. Uh, we often find ourselves in communities um, where I know the traditional narrative that they've been involved in. And at the same time, I know that being introduced to these ideas were devastating to, <laughs> to my faith and my ideas up to that stage. And so it's it's that difficult position of, I want to be of benefit to you, but the only way in which I can be of benefit is to totally annihilate what you um, stand on at the moment. And it's to find that balance where, where people don't know that you're busy destroying their very foundation of faith until it's too late and they at the same moment find that there's actually a much better foundation and um, a much more expansive, more beautiful faith. And, and what I always know within whatever group we're part of is more and more there are people in these groups who have already deeply questioned the assumptions that they beliefs are built on and maybe uh, on a you know on a superficial level they have to maintain an appearance of um you know abiding by the statements and the the 
towing the line of the official narrative of the denomination or their church. But most people who are honestly seeking meaning are already in the process of, of finding the many assumptions that our beliefs are built on just not um, worth it anymore. There's got to be a better explanation, a better story mm -hmm. um, than that. And so I find that really exciting because mm -hmm. I'm very often with groups and I sense that there is a receptiveness. I sense that God has already been working way before I got there. <laughs> I'm not coming there to introduce them to something that's completely new. We are actually just helping one another break through the latest barrier to to see what the Spirit of God's been doing in us all along. Um, so that's exciting. That's exciting to be at that point, yeah. Yeah, it is. And I will say, I was thinking when you were responding that way, um, that as I look back over the last five to ten years, really about eight years for me, that there is a growing um, there's an increasing interest in already admitting to have to having questions, even yes. more than there was five or ten years ago. You know, ten years ago, you had to. Well, I'll speak for myself too. I mean, I had to as well. I had to create room to even just admit that I had questions. Yeah. <laughs> so I do think you're right. My experience has been that a growing number of people are at least, you know, creating space. Thankfully, unfortunately, yeah. of course. I think the reason for that is, is because there's so much unrest and lack of peace and, and the Christian, uh, story at least, which is where I know, I know you spend a lot of your time and I certainly spend a lot of my time, um, has been left wanting. So that's, that's unfortunate, but yeah, that's, that's a good reminder. And you and Marianne, I mean, you guys travel the world. Um, I don't have very many friends who, you know, live in Africa, but come over to America or to Europe and go speak regularly. So I'm really um, excited for and proud of what you're doing. How are you noticing mm. is Girardian or Whiteheadian stuff for that matter being received well um, in different parts of the world or is it is it kind of mm. similar or? Yes, so... Um we would typically get invitations from places where people have already heard something about what we had to say. Um, so they, if they heard anything I had to say in the last 10 years, they probably heard a, a little bit of Gerard in there as well, um, no matter what the theme. And... I guess what I can, can say is that uh, 10 years ago, it would have been the name wouldn't have rang any bells for most people where, <laughs> where I would have ministered. There is a growing awareness. Um, and and even if you know, even if it's not the growing awareness of the different authors or the technical terminology or, or all of those things, I think the the way of think, thinking is certainly there. More and more people are questioning the logic behind penal substitution, the logic behind the God who is violent. Uh, more and more people are are questioning the. Um, the way in which we view truth as something that's just static fact, that you've got to just agree to these statements and that's truth. I think most people are coming to that place where they say actually truth is much more expansive, much more creative, much more um, alive than just uh, having to agree with a preset narrative, uh, which at the, at the end of the day is really just somebody's interpretation of text in most um, 
churches, which is... Uh, so people are already moving to that place to say that maybe truth is... Um, Maybe there's room for different perspectives, different views, and each one of those views and those perspectives produces a value that is not visible in the other perspective. You know, it's kind of like art. Art is that process of harmonizing all these contrasts and all these elements in a way where some elements disappear into the background and some elements are emphasized in our focus and our attention. And so although people don't know the name of Whitehead or Gerard or, or many of these terminologies... Uh, or my name. Or mine. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly this... this uh, can I call it a, a global <laughs> influence, uh, which uh, which is making people ask the same questions, um, which I think is very beautiful and yeah. very positive. Yeah, yeah. Global influence makes you think: Could that be called love? Yeah. <laughs> could love be inviting us? I think that's yeah. true. Um, and to, to be clear for just for folks who might be listening, who are at the beginning or in the middle or all along the way, when you talk about truth, I think that's so important. What I heard you say was, um, yeah, truth is much more expansive than words on a text in a, in a text. That's not to devalue the text. It's just to say that, um, truth is never really propositional. It's always mm -hmm. it always winds up being relational mm -hmm. and and contexts change and good lord the words themselves the meanings of the words change so if you are struggling with reading whatever your particular sacred text is people listening to us it's probably the bible um mm -hmm. hey welcome to the family uh, you this is a this is good news that you're struggling with some of these words because you know they were written a long time ago they've been translated <laughs> many, many times they've been interpreted through lots of different lenses, by the way, mostly through, you know, white, Eurocentric, masculine, straight, relatively affluent theological types mm. before they ever yeah. got to you. So there's yeah. room for interpretation. And thankfully, there's room for love. Absolutely. Yeah. Love, love doesn't exist to a relationship with the text, um, which, which again is a creative space. Mm. Now, even if I think of Jesus uh, being born within a very specific culture, a very specific point in history, Ephesians calls it, the, 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 you know, that the fullness of time. It was a, a, a moment within our history where, where cultures converged and ideas converged and, and all of these things brought about a, a moment of such significance. And he was part of a, the, the Jewish faith. And what makes... Jesus such an uh, amazing inspiration for many people is that he was not just dissolved by his religion and his culture. He was not just absorbed in it and became a pristine example of what it's supposed to be. But rather, he found within his religion and culture the aspects that are valuable and worthy, but then he radically reinterpreted it. I mean, he he caused anarchy. He caused chaos in his creative reinterpretation of what everybody believed up to that stage. And he did it using their texts and using their traditions and using their 
their popular views and and kind of just opened our eyes to a way of seeing that is much more valuable than what his religion and his culture would have prescribed to him. And so I think following Jesus is not just following those preset ideas, but it is following his whole way of living, which is a creative way of living, which is this way of saying, yes, we want to value whatever we can from the past, whatever interpretations we that's still useful for the future. But God is not so much invested in a past interpretation of the text as he is in this moment reinterpretation of the text, the, the thoughts and the possibilities, the values in the mind of God continually seeks flesh. They they seek interpretation and and your life has that opportunity to be a unique translation of the thought of God that's more relevant than the original Greek and Hebrew that's more um, accurate in this moment than whatever scholar combinations of scholars can can come to by just interpreting past texts. Your life in this moment has a, a relevancy and a creative um, capacity to influence this world that I think the Logos is much more excited about than you just having a correct interpretation of what people thought 2,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's very well said. It reminds me, one of the, uh, someone said at the conference, might have been Bruce Epperly or maybe been someone else, I don't know. And I'd never, I'd never heard this line quite like this, but he said that, yeah. uh, they said God is the youngest thing that there is. <laughs> meaning and i'm i'm going to take that and connect it to what you just said as you reinterpret the text and you interpret all the past whatever you've gone through and you live in this moment you know you are becoming yeah. god in that moment and so now you are the newest the youngest thing that's happening and that's brilliant because you know we all grew up with this idea that god's the oldest you know biggest baddest strongest um but actually, God, God is God is the brand newest thing that's happening right in this moment. I love it. That's so beautiful. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're wow. doing a, um, a Girardian conference together um, August 19th as of our recording today. I think we're 30 days out. I'm not sure when this episode will drop. Sometime before then. Do you have a, um, without giving all of your wisdom away. Do you have a brief thought of what you might be talking about um, on that day? I guess I want to, I could take my whole time slot just introducing why, why Ted and Gerard um, are so well suited. I'm trying to kind of find a way of both introducing it, but then also giving a more detailed example of um why they are so well suited. But maybe I'll just draw attention to, to one particular thing. So now process philosophy is, uh, the clue is in the name, it's got the view of reality where everything is processed. Now, our view of reality, when we start trying to understand the, the nature of reality, we really have two choices. It's either substances that acts and that is why there is activity in our world. Or you can take the view that activities is primary and substances or things are kind of the results of activity. Now, process philosophy kind of uh, takes activity and process events to be primary 
And whatever stuff and things we see are the results of those processes. So that's that's kind of a very simplistic way of saying this universe is a pulsating living movement. There's no um, there's no e eternal, unchanging substances below the reality of the movement that we see. Even the things that we think are most permanent. If you look at the mountain, it, it, there was a time that mountain wasn't there. It might have taken much longer to become what it is, and it might look much more stable than all the other things around, but it's also in process. Um, process is what made it what it is and continues to, to create it. Now, that kind of fundamental idea behind process philosophy I think finds an echo in the way in which Gerard looks at the human story. He looks at it as processes, that this process of forming desires, I think mimetic desire is kind of the, the basic um, unit of process that he begins with. But this basic process by which we somehow feel the desires of others and, and 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 duplicate it within ourselves to some extent or creatively reinterpret it within our own context and, and nature. That process then becomes the, the intertwined with many other processes. So how does this process cause conflict? How does conflict cause scapegoating, how does scapegoating that process cause the emergence of religion and culture? So one can view Gerard's um, whole theory as just the in interconnected and nested series of processes. Now, when, when um, you know all of this, so I'm kind of just giving you a unique perspective, <laughs> I think, on how I'm thinking of bringing them together. But then if we look at, you know, why they developed a very um, detailed system by which processes can be analysed, you know, and understood in, in more detail, so what happens if we apply um, Whitehead's metaphysical uh, categories to the processes within the Gerardian world? I think one of the things that happens is it gives us more insight into those processes. But on a, uh, as a summary, I would say that Whitehead's insight into reality is a reality where we cannot divorce the fragment from the whole or the or the particular from the universal. So Whitehead's view of reality is a cosmic story. It's got both a cosmology and a ontology, and, and they're inseparable because the nature of things are intertwined with the whole. <laughs> and so if we put... Gerard's anthropological story into the context of this cosmological story, we attain a, a larger story or, or a story where this portion, which is anthropology, this chapter, the human story becomes, um, uh, uh, is brought into clearer focus, I think, by Gerard. Uh, he adds something to that chapter, but White it also certainly adds a lot to understanding human consciousness, understanding the movement of desires, and um, yeah. So that's that's kind of the ideas that I want to bring about, and and I'm I'm sure that probably with this conference, most people will be more. Um, you know, interested in Gerard, but even though some, I'm at the moment putting the dissertation into a book, I'm aware of the fact that most of my audience will either be, be, 
people who love white debt and process or they will love to ride. There aren't many crazy people like us that have tried to bring them <laughs> together. And so I'm working on a way of how do you how do you simplify the Gerardian story? <laughs> and how do you simplify the Waitedian story? How do you give a quick sketch of both and then delve into the detail of, of where they connect further down? Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, I just thought I'd offer a comment. Um, when you said something like, I know you already know this or whatever. So the truth is, I, I do know a lot of stuff, what you're saying, but a, like you said, it's great to get someone's unique perspective. B the old adage has never been more, has never proven to be more true to me. That is the more, you know, the more you realize what you don't know. Yes. And, uh, it's particularly frustrating because I've been on a journey, probably like you, lots of us trying to figure it out as if you can figure it out. And every time I turn the page, both literally and metaphorically, there's, mm. there's more pages to read. There's more things to learn. It's, so yeah. I, I can get overwhelmed um, at times. And so all that to say too, for people who are listening, even for those of us who have uh, like stared at the ceiling for hours on end, trying to figure out, how this makes sense you never you never stop learning so um, which is slightly frustrating but also a lot of fun it is i i love why it's kind of whole um motivation behind this philosophy it kind of begins with that all of this philosophy should have its basis in a very careful observation of your current experience and then you can go into the abstractions and the universals and your speculations but ultimately the value of your philosophy is can you bring it back to an experience where your philosophy has given you a new insight a new understanding of this experience in such a way that it enriches your experience and I think, wow, that that kind of it should be the goal of all communication, that we, yeah. we start something very tangible and, and, and we end there. Do these thoughts actually enrich your experience? But I would love to hear a quick also summary of what you're going to speak about at the, at the conference. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Thank you. I think I'm going to just try to briefly introduce mimetic theory starting mm -hmm. out. My, my time slot will be a little bit shorter. I'll probably go only about 30 minutes. Um, okay. And so this might be helpful for you too, so you know where to, where to go. But I, I love what you're doing, and I think it's going to be, I think it's going to fit really, really well. I usually um, unpack mimetic, it, you know, it's not linear, but I try to make it linear so that I can give myself and others handles on how, to, how it m might work. And I usually yeah. say it's like a five-fold movement, mm -hmm. but I'm but I'm always, not always, but over the last couple of years, I've been more and more unpacking the five-fold movement against the backdrop of two things. Number one is uh, the reality of uh, relationship, you know, the mm -hmm. relationality of the world, which you've already begun to speak to, the interconnectedness and the entanglement. Which is what the which is what our smartest people have been telling us, and it's what our experience seems to say is true. And then a second piece that I think is often overlooked with Girardian stuff, or for that matter, maybe a lot of stuff, it's this philosophical idea of well, if you were if you were speaking philosophically, you would call it the lack. Maybe religiously, you would call it like fallen shortness or something. Mm -hmm. This this crack, this kind of break that. What seems to be true about all of us humans is this common denominator that ties us together is this idea that we're we're aware of there's like something not quite right inside of us or cracked or maybe broken i don't love that word as much but just a gap you know a lack and i think that that plays uh, a huge role in how mimetic desire begins to grow because it agitates it and in fact if you know if you want, we wanted to, we go off on a whole tangent about how it agitates a lot of Christianity because much of Christianity took that idea of this 
gap, this separation, this lack, and took it to mean that God was separate from us, which which I don't think is true, and it sent us off in the wrong. Mm -hmm. But so what I'll do is um, I'll go, hey, mimetic desire plays out against relationship and this lack, and then it goes desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating, which is a resolution of the conflict. And then the fifth piece is the ritualization, and which you already mentioned, the religion then that comes out of of this whole thing. Yeah. That's that's kind of that's probably so very useful to know. Um and and I love the you know the coming to the heart and the assumption of where desire begins is this sense of lack. I I was so amazed by some of the things I discovered in White did in the last week about um desire as well he he of course calls it appetition because he he tries to identify it in every process within existence not just the complex version that we have in in human psychology but it's interesting that you can you can take both Gerardian desire and Waititian appetition and locate them in the same space which is it emerges in that space between what is and what could be, mm. which is another way of saying lack. So it's mm-hmm. the that contrast that's being created and, and the intensity of contrasts that's created between um, what is actual and what is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I discovered the beautiful um, portion in one of He's in, I think it's process and reality where he speaks about how appetition becomes more complex within higher grade organisms such as humans, where it becomes the appetition of appetition, where reminds me of Gerard, uh, we desire according to, to the desires of others, where there's this complexification and and appetite is no longer limited to just the boundaries of an occasion, but it becomes part of an identity that this is what I want. Mm-hmm. This is what the ideal that I strive for. Mm-hmm. And um, if anyone stands in the way of me trying to attain that ideal, that's normally where the conflict arises. Um, but I think that that portion that you spoke of of lack is is so important. Did you see that somebody just published one of Gerard's, I think, one of his earliest books that was only available in French that basically says all desire is a desire for being. I did see there was something new. I, I don't remember what it is, but it is ringing yeah. a bell. Yeah. So I think that would speak exactly to what yeah. what you touched on there. Yeah, yeah, you're speaking about and I and listeners can probably can maybe relate to this, but you know, at first you have a desire for something else because your model presents it to you, someone that you like, you know, presents this idea to you. And so you go after the thing, but what Gerard is saying is after a while it it becomes less and less about that object and it becomes more and more about like assuming um the other person like becoming the other person because you assume that they have it you assume they have no lack that there are no gaps that they they have it all put together yeah Uh, my one of my uh go-to examples for that is the movie um the prestige have you seen that christopher nolan i haven't you you need you need to see it um uh you'll you'll see mimetic theory it's i don't know if christopher nolan has studied mimetic theory but I would be shocked if he hasn't because a lot of his shows have uh, a lot of desire wrapped up in it. And the prestige is so blatantly, it, it's, it, it becomes about, yeah, the assumption of the other becoming the other person. So, okay. That's, and if people are reacting, you know, if that sounds weird and like sinister, and it, it is, it is dysfunctional and weird and sinister. And that's, that speaks to the, capacity of negative mimesis and what it can do to us. Um, and I guess the, the other thing is it's mostly unconscious. So if you right. don't 
if you uh, if you don't um, relate to what was just said, I don't want any what other people want. I don't have models. Um, yes, this process is mostly unconscious, and this is why Gerard, you know, unveils this very embarrassing and uncomfortable truth, and that is, if you find yourself in conflict with somebody. Um, it is probably because on the unconscious level, they are a model to you. <laughs> and which meant that you adopted similar desires to what they want, which means that you are both reaching for the same object of desire. And, and that's where the conflict begins. So in conflict, we don't like to hear that we are like the rival. <laughs> All we want to see is that we are different. Right. He is this, and I am the complete opposite. Um, but the uncomfortable truth that Gerard reveals is that rivals don't fight because they are different. They they fight because they are the same. <laughs> yeah. I'm pausing to let that truth sink in. Because <laughs> that, I think, is one of the most brilliant things that Gerard helps us with. And it's one of the things that I personally constantly have to uh, wrestle with because yes. I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. It's been so helpful for me in understanding any situation in which there is conflict. I, uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, major conflict with an uh, uh, enemy I can even think if there's conflict within my marriage, what is it that I perceive my spouse as withholding from me? What desire do I see her as an obstacle to? Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, there's a different way of viewing the problem. And, and it's a way of viewing the problem that, that helps you find the solution within yourself rather than always saying the problem's out there. And, you know, if you change, then everything would be okay. Suddenly you realize, I didn't even know that it is that desire that has caused this problem. And and why do I desire it? You know, where did that desire come from? <laughs> it's it's been so useful in a very practical and real way of of understanding relationships. Yeah, super helpful. How do you? Oh well, let me ask you this way. So I think we both would agree that so mimesis in and of itself, this um, interactive desiring energy that seems to be bouncing around in between all 8 billion of us humans and growing. Mimesis in and of itself is neither moral nor immoral. It's an amoral thing. Girard famously doesn't, or infamously, doesn't mm. expand on the positive side as, as much yeah. as the negative. Um, yeah. So we could talk all day, but I thought maybe we would wind down by, I'll just make the comment that I, because I, I know we've talked about this before and we would both um, mm. think this anyhow, um, that, that one of the ways to combat the negative mimesis is to accept the reality that my model is presenting desires to me, mediating my desires, uh, to be humble and admit that, admit that I'm not this completely unique individual, that's somewhat of a myth, and so yeah. um, I have to have, I have to take time to think about who my positive role models are. Who are those models out there that are living in a, I'll just say a healthy, emotionally, physically, spiritually way. And yeah. so if I desire their desires, I have a better chance <laughs> at health yes. myself. So for you, and I know we just, we just covered a lot of territory, but um all that to say, who who are your models right now? Um, yeah. Who who are who's healthy for you, and who have you been trying to intentionally emulate and be aware of? 
Yeah. Um, I remember when that whole process hit me <laughs> many years ago when I discovered that Avis influenced my desires. There was a stage in which I just lost all desire. And I think it was kind of a subconscious rebellion to being formed by relationships with others. I, I didn't want anyone to be part of that creative process. Um, and it happened, you know, I didn't understand it fully during the process, but afterwards I started, uh, and during the process, I started realizing why I had such a rebellion against this idea that others could form my desire. Um, I grew up with such a strong sense that who and what I am is this substance designed and deposited by God within me and nothing will ever change it. And to move from that to know God is actually in this moment with you creatively deciding what you're becoming. <laughs> and together you are creating what you are. And that togetherness is not just the togetherness of me and God, that's the togetherness of me and every relationship I'm in. And I thought when I first came through that, and it was a place where I think my uh, my faith was severely um, challenged in that time again, even so much so that I, I feel that that was a moment in which there was a very significant recommitment in myself to the person of Jesus. When, when I intentionally started thinking, who do I want to be models in my life? I reconsidered the person of G. Well, I, I remembered what the model he's been for me in my life, but at that time I thought, well, here's a person that somehow found the ability to love in the midst of whatever was thrown at him. And because of his ability to lose himself and give himself for others, what the impact he made. If there's anything, anyone that should be uh, an example, it's him. But then I started thinking as well of, of my family, my friends. Um, I, I developed a new perspective and appreciation of the relationship that I have with Mary Ann, my wife, a new perspective and appreciation for the relationship that I have with my kids, realizing that um, these relationships should not just be a continuation of an old pattern, but they are creative movements that on a daily basis I can look at my wife and not just uh, be familiar with what I think I know about her, but be open to the creative possibilities that she brings to my day today. <laughs> that there's something she got contributes that, that's never been contributed before. So I guess what, what I'll say is that instead of mentioning big names, what I want to say is that my friendships with specific people uh, uh, have deepened uh, because I've kind of acknowledged their creative capacity to influence my life and they might not be well-known names they are just friends and they, Jesus is a pretty well-known name oh yes he is yeah yeah that's the one <laughs> but uh, also I yeah so generally I would say I I found a, a, a new appreciation for the value of relationships now practically I guess what what's how you know captured me for the past few months is a um for past few years is a very deep engagement with both Whitehead and Gerard. Um we both love Thomas Ordi's amazing contribution that he's making to open and relational um theology. There are people that I identify and and say 
these are relationships with nurturing. Um, uh, yeah, that's it. That's very good. So uh, when do you imagine? So for those listening, you, you've already completed a dissertation. You've already done all that. and uh, But now you had the crazy idea of adding some stuff to it before you publish it. Yes. And so when is that um, going to be done, do you think? I was really hoping end of July so that it can go out to be, uh, you know, peer-reviewed and be available shortly after the after the <laughs> the conference but oh boy having having given myself on a total focus in the last two weeks to try and complete it by july now there are there are weeks in which it feels this will never happen and then there's a days in which i feel i'm going to finish it tonight this mm -hmm. is just flowing so nicely unfortunately i'm at that stage at the moment where i i feel it's going to take a bit longer <laughs> yeah yeah but um it, it's it's imminent in the next few months yeah 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 i totally relate to that um you feel like it's over and the next day you learn something new or you have a conversation or you read something and you're like, oh man, I got to insert this. So, so no pressure. I look forward to it either way. Um, and obviously I've read what you've done so far and I'm really excited about it. And yeah, maybe conference time, if people are wanting to read it, maybe it'll be done enough for you to shoot some, you know, early iterations of what you think the final yes. might be in PDF form or something to folks. And yeah. then, that could be helpful or whatever, whatever's helpful for you is, is cool. Right. Thanks. Well, I would love you take your take on this one because it, it, there's a lot of things that's um, shifted. About kind of the form, the kind of, you'll recognize everything that was in the dissertation is there, but there, there's a greater width and, and depth to it. Yeah. I bet. I bet it's going to be great. I think, super super helpful for our world and uh, hopefully people can run with it and and go even further so mm -hmm. well thanks Thank for you, hanging out with me all the way from africa and uh we'll get together in a month or so with our friends and talk more girardian stuff if people want to find out about you is it always loved.net is that right that's it always loved.net uh, we've got links from there to all our resources so yeah yeah yep. so i encourage folks to check in with andre and read his stuff and uh listen he's on lots of youtubes and different things like that so cool man thanks jonathan all right we'll tell uh tell your partner hello marianne and um we'll talk soon appreciate it thank you my friend <laughs> Bye bye